Chapter Two of the Romance of Plant Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eva Stays. The Romance of Plant Life by George Francis Scott Eliot. Chapter Two on Savages, Doctors, and Plants. Savages knew botany first lady doctors and botanical excursions true drugs and horrible ornaments hydrophobia cures cloves mustard ivy roses and teeth how to keep hair on how to know if a patient will recover curious properties of a mushroom the scythian lamb quinine history and use safflower Romance of Ipecacuana, Wars of the Spice Trade, Cinnamon, Dogwood, and Indigo, Romance of Pepper, Babylonian and Egyptian Botanists, Chinese Discoveries, Theophrastus, Medieval Times, The First Illustrated Book, Numbers of Plants Known, Discoveries of Painters and Poets If we look back to the time when all men and women were mere savages, living like the Eskimo or the Australians of today, then it is certain that every person was much interested in plants. Nothing was so interesting as daily food, because no one was ever certain of even one good meal in the day. So that in those early times there was a very sound, well-grounded knowledge of roots, bulbs, and fruits. They knew all that were good to eat, all that could possibly be eaten in times of famine and starvation, and also every poisonous and unwholesome plant. Some savage genius must have discovered that certain plants were good medicine, that certain tree barks helped to check fever, and that others were worth trying when people had successfully devoured more than they could comfortably digest. The life of a savage meant tremendous meals, followed by days of starvation. Even now, when young children are fed on rice in India, a thread is tied round their waist, and, when this bursts, they are not allowed to eat any more. Very probably, some of these early physicians were lady doctors, usually of a certain age. Men were too busy with their hunting and warfare to have time to try experiments with drugs, to make concoctions of herbs, all more or less disquieting, and to find out if these were of any use. So that such medicine men or witches gradually came to understand enough about poisons or fruit to make themselves respected and even feared. They would, no doubt, make botanical excursions in the forest, accompanied by their pupils, in order to point out the poisonous and useful drugs. It is worth noting, in passing, that this habit of botanical professors going on excursions with medical students has persisted down to our own times, probably without any break in the continuity. But it was soon found advisable to make this knowledge secret and difficult to get. They did not really know so very much, and a mysterious, solemn manner, and a quantity of horrible and unusual objects placed around the hut would perhaps prevent some irate and impatient savage patient from throwing a spear at his wizard or witch-doctor. Footnote. This is still the custom in huts of the wizard or medicine men in West Africa, where one finds small cushions stuck over with all sorts of poisonous plants, bits of human bones, and other loathsome accessories. End footnote. Shakespeare alludes to this in Macbeth. 
scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, which is mummy, maw and gulf of the raven, salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, gall of goat and slips of yew, and so on. Most of their cures were faith cures, and they were, no doubt, much more likely to be successful when the patient believed he was being treated with some dreadful stew of all sorts of wonderful and horrible materials. This explains how it was that the knowledge of medicine became so mixed up with pure charlatanism and swindling that no man could tell which drugs were of real use and which were mere ornaments giving piquancy and flavor to the prescription. It is not possible to say that a snake's head, the brain of a toad, the gall of a crocodile, and the whiskers of a tiger were all of them absolutely useless. Within the last few years it has been found that an antidote to snake bite can be obtained from a decoction of part of the snake itself, and it has also been discovered that small quantities of virulent poisons are amongst our most valuable and powerful remedies. Whether the savages and the successors, the doctors of feudal times, even down to the 15th and 16th centuries suspected or believed that this was the case must remain a rather doubtful hypothesis. But there is no question that the hair of the dog that bit him, theory of medicine, was very prevalent. The following was a cure for hydrophobia of a more elaborate nature. I learned of a friend who had tried it effectual to cure the biting of a mad dog. Take the leaves and roots of cowslips, of the leaves of box and pennyroyal, of each a like quantity, shred them small to put them into hot broth, and let it be so taken, three days together, and apply the herbs to the bitten place with soap and hog suet melted together. Parkinson. This prescription is not so preposterous as it sounds. Box and pennyroyal both contain essences which would be in all probability fatal to the germs of hydrophobia, and the soap and hong suet would keep air from the wound. Other prescriptions read like our modern patent medicines. Good clothes comfort the brain and the virtue of feeling, and help also against indigestion and ache of the stomach. Bartholomew. Sanvey, the old name of mustard. Healeth smiting of serpents, and overcometh venom of the scorpion, and abateth toothache, and cleanseth the hair, and letteth, that is, prevents, or tending to prevent, the falling thereof. If it be drunk fasting, it make the intellect good. Even in those days the people can scarcely have believed that drinking mustard improved the intellect. Many of the remedies and cures are obviously false. For example, the following. A man crowned with ivy cannot get drunk powder of dry roses comforteth wagging teeth that be in point to fall the fact that the surgeon was also a barber and also a face specialist appears from two of the following leaves of chestnut burnt to powder and tempered with vinegar and laid to a man's head plaster-wise maketh hair increase and keepeth hair from falling those who hair turned gray could employ the following prescription leaves of mulberry sod in rain-water maketh black hair if a doctor was not quite sure of their endurance of a patient under these heroic remedies, he could easily find out if he would recover, for it was only necessary to try the following. Solendine with the heart of a mold's warp, that is, mole, Scotus moldywort, laid under the head of one that is grievously sick. If he be in danger of death, immediately he will cry out with a loud voice or sing. If not, he will weep. In Lightfoot's Flora Scotia, there is an interesting account of the fly mushroom, Agaricus muscarus, 
which is not very rare in Britain, and which may easily be recognized by the bright red top or cap with whitest scales scattered over it and a sort of ring of loose white tissue around the stalk it has an acrid and deleterious quality from the inhabitants of kamshakta prepare a liquor from an infusion of this agaric which has taken a small quantity exhilarates the spirits but in a larger dose brings on a trembling of the nerves intoxication delirium and melancholy linnaeus informs us that flies are killed or at least stupefied by an infusion of this fungus in milk and that the express juice of it anointed on bedsteads than other places effectually destroys what we may describe as a certain lively and pertinacious insects with great affection for man as a matter of fact the fungus is said to be a deadly poison these quotations are enough to show how the real medical knowledge of those times was encrusted with all sorts of faith-curing devices sheer falsehoods and superstitions the most learned men of the middle ages were almost invariably monks and hermits for there was nothing in the world of those strenuous times to attract a studious sensitive disposition the spirits of their learning can be judged from the wearisome disquisitions in lengthy volumes written about the barnacle goose the scythian lamb in certain deserts along the volga river in russia a peculiar fern may be found it might be described as resembling a gigantic polypody the stem is about as thick as a lamb's body and grows horizontally on the ground like that of the common fern mentioned thick furry scales cover the outside of its stem which ends at the tip in an elongated point the blackish green leaves stalk springing from the furry stem and in large divided green leaves it occurred to some medieval humorist to cut off the upper part of the leafish stalks and to make a sort of toy lamb out of the four leaf stalk stumps and part of the woolly or furry stem this was palmed off as a wonderful curiosity of nature as a plant that became an animal upon the ingenuous tourist of the period such a subject was thoroughly congenial to the learned mind in the middle ages and an enormous quantity of literature was produced in consequence the general theory is given in the following lines cradled in snow and fanned by arctic air shines gentle baromets thy golden hair rooted in earth each cloven hoof descends and round and round her flexible neck she bends crops the grey coral moss and hoary thyme or lapsus rosy tongue the melting rhyme eyes with mute tenderness her distant dam or seems to bleat a vegetable lamb such is the old idea of a well-known fern subotium baromets yet the original researches of some african obi wizard or red indian were not forgotten and gradually came into practice it must be remembered that these savages were true scientific experimentalists and made discoveries which have been infinite service to mankind we remember great men like harvey lester and pasteur but we never think of the indian who discovered quinine the quinine trees the yellow variety of calicea quinchona grow in the mountains of northeastern bolivia and southeastern peru and wild inaccessible places at heights of five thousand to six thousand feet the indians probably experimented with almost every part of every wild tree before they discovered the wonderful properties of this particular species the quinine in nature is probably intended to prevent some fungus or small insect from attacking the bark 
when quinine is used in malaria it kills the fever germ which attacks the blood corpuscles of the sick person so that it is the most utmost importance in all tropical countries when the jesuit fathers reached peru and made friends and converts of the indians they discovered this remedy soon after the countess de Sicone, the wife of the viceroy of peru fell seriously ill of fever and was cured by the use of jesuit's park or quinine it was introduced into europe about sixteen thirty eight but for a very long time the entire supply came from south america the british indian government were paying some twelve thousand pounds every year for south american quinine and at the same time the supply was running short for the indians were cutting down every tree at last in eighteen fifty nine on the suggestion of dr royal in eighteen thirty nine the adventurous journeys of clements markham spruce and robert cross resulted in the introduction of the cinchona now flourishing in madras bombay and ceylon in eighteen ninety seven british colonies produced about forty three thousand four hundred and fifteen pounds worth of quinine and the price is now only seven and a half pennies or eight pennies a pound such drugs as safflower are of very ancient date it was commonly employed in egypt with other dyes and spices for embalming mummies it is now used with carbonate of soda and citric acid to give a pink dye to silks and satins and occasionally in the form of rouge to ladies cheeks how did the ancient egyptians discover that this particular thistle-like plant carthamus tinctorus had flowers from which a red dye could be extracted by a tedious process of soaking in water the natural color of the flower is not red but yellow the history of other drugs reads like a romance ipecacuana for instance was discovered by some unknown indian who lived in the damp tropical forests of brazil and new granada a worthy merchant in paris obtained a little of the drug in the way of trade shortly afterward he became very ill and was attended by a certain dr Halavetius, who was exceedingly attentive to him the grateful merchant gave the kind-hearted physician some ipecacuana in the course of time the great king louis the fourteenth's son fell ill of dysentery and halavetius received a thousand louis d'or for his ipecacuana a very interesting and romantic history might be written about the effects of drugs dyes and spices in developing trade during the time when britain was struggling to obtain share of the foreign trade of holland and france such as spices of clove cinnamon and pepper were of the greatest importance the dutch especially adopted every possible method to keep the spice trade in their own hands they cut down cloves cinnamon and other trees in all the islands not directly under their control they imposed the most barbarous penalties on any interloper for instance any one who sold a single stick of cinnamon in ceylon was punished with death when the english captured the island in seventeen ninety six all such restrictions were of course repealed nevertheless its cultivation remained a monopoly of the east india company until eighteen thirty two logwood amatoxylon compactianum is closely connected to the story of adventure and colonization in the west indies its use was at first forbidden by queen elizabeth as it did not yield fast colors this was because the dyers did not know of any mordant to fix them yet this is one of the few vegetable dyes which retain their position in the market in these days of aniline colors and is said to be large constituent with brandy of cheap port wine 
indigo was known to the romans who imported it from india on camelback by way of the persian and syrian desert in the fifteenth century when the dutch began to introduce it in large quantities it was found to interfere with the woad Estasis tinctoria which was then a very important cultivated plant in europe in nuremberg an oath was administered once a year to all the manufacturers and dyers by which they bound themselves not to use the devil's dye as they called indigo its more recent history shows a very different system in assam and other parts of british india enormous sums of money have been invested in indigo plantations it has been estimated that four million pounds was invested and that a population of something like seven hundred europeans and eight hundred and fifty workmen to the square mile in bihar were entirely supported by indigo plantations now all these planters are ruined and the population is dispersed because german indigo manufactured from coal tar is destroying the sale of the british grown material the plant has pretty blue flowers and belongs to the legumonious order the dye is obtained by steeping the leaves and young branches in water and it is finally turned out in blue powder or cakes perhaps the most interesting of all these drugs is pepper the dutch in the days of queen elizabeth had a monopoly of the east indian trade and they tried to cut down or burn all spice trees except those in their own control they could thus form a corner in pepper and alter the price as they felt inclined as one period they doubled the price raising it from three shillings to six shillings per pound this annoyed the london merchants so much that they met together and formed the society of merchants and adventurers trading to the east indies this was of course the original source of our great east indian trade and later on resulted in the indian empire at present and for centuries the whole world is searched and explored for drugs and spaces a medicinal rhubarb for instance grows in china on the frontiers of tibet it is carried over the mountains of china to kiakta in siberia and from thence taken across the russian siberia to london and new york it is closely allied to the common and garden rhubarb which grows wild on the banks of the volga it is only our duty to remember with gratitude all those long since departed botanists who have made our lives so full of luxury and have supplied our doctors with all kinds of medicines the first doctors were of course just savage botanists but as soon as men began to write down their experiences we find botanical treaties the first and for a very long time the only botanical books were intended to teach medical students the names and how to recognize useful flowers and drugs medicinal herbs such as mandrake garlic and mint are found described on those clay cylinders which were used in babylon instead of books about four thousand b c that's some six thousand years ago the egyptians thought that kindly healing plants such as opium almonds figs castor oil dates and olives were derived from the blood and tears of the gods that would be about three thousand b c it is not known how far back chinese botany can be traced but by the twelfth century before christ some three hundred plants were known including ginger licorice rhubarb and cinnamon theophrastus who flourished about three hundred b c was a scientific botanist far ahead of his time his notes about the mangroves in the persian gulf are still of some importance it is said that some two thousand botanical students attended his lectures it is doubtful if any professor of botany has ever since that time had so large a number of pupils 
Dioscorides, who lived about 64 BC, wrote a book which was copied by the Pliny, 78 AD, who perished in the eruption of Vesuvius. The botany of the Middle Ages seemed to have been mainly that of Theophrastus and Dioscorides. In the 10th century, we find an Arab, Ibd Sina, whose name has been commemorated in the name of a plant, Avicenia, publishing the first illustrated textbook, for he gave colored diagrams to his pupils. After this, there was an exceedingly little discovery until comparatively recent times, but grew in 1682, and Malpighi in 1700 began to work with the microscope, and with the work of Linnaeus in 1731, modern botany was well started and ready to develop. It is interesting to compare the numbers of plants known at various periods, so as to see how greatly our knowledge has been increased of recent years. Theophrastus, 300 B.C., knew about 500 plants. Pliny, 78 A.D., knew about a thousand species by name. Linnaeus, in 1731, raised the number to 10,000. Sicardo, in 1892, gives the number of plants then known as follows. Flowering plants, 105,231 species. Ferns, 2,819 species. Horsetails and club mosses, 565 species. Mosses, 4,609 species. Liverworts, 3,041 species. Lichens, 5,600 species. Fungi, 39,663 species. Seaweeds, 12,178 species. Total, 173,706 species. But during the years that have elapsed since 1892, many new species have been described, so that we may estimate that at least 200,000 species are now known to mankind. But it is in the inner meaning and general knowledge of the life of plants that modern botany has made the most extraordinary progress. It is true that we are still burdened with medieval terminology. There are such names as Galbalus, Amphisarca, and inferior Drupaceus pseudocarps, but these are probably disappearing. The great idea that plants are living beings, that every detail in their structure has a meaning in their life, and that all plants are more or less distant cousins descended from a common ancestor, have had extraordinary influence in overthrowing the unintelligent pedantry so prevalent until 1875. Yet there are many, not always botanists, of much older date, who have made great discoveries in the science. Leonardo da Vinci, the great painter, seems to have quite a definite idea of the growth of trees, for he found out that on the annual rings on a tree stem are thin on the northern and thick on the southern side of the trunk. Dante have also understood the effects of sunlight in ripening the vine and producing the growth of the plants. Purgatorio, 25. 77. Goethe seems to have been almost the first to understand how leaves can be changed in appearance when they are intended to act in a different way. Petals, stamens, as well as some tendrils and spines, are all modified leaves. There is also a passage in Virgil, or perhaps more distinctly in Cato, which is held to show that the ancients knew that groups of plants, leguminoso, in some way improved the soil. I have also tried to show that Shelley had a more or less distinct idea of the warning or conspicuous colors. 
reds, purples, spotted, and speckled, which are characteristics of many poisonous plants. But if we begin with the unlettered savage, one can trace the very slow and gradual growth of the science of plant life, persisting all through the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and recent times, until about fifty or sixty years ago, when a sudden great development began, which gives us, we hope, the promise of still more wonderful discoveries. End of chapter 2